time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. And God goes courting. And God goes courting. Almighty God, you are the lover of my soul. I thank you. You proved once and for all at the cross that you had unfailing love for my soul. I praise you, and I thank you. Now, would you quicken in our hearts and minds, and would you give us understanding of the courtship? I pray in your holy name. Amen. We all love to be loved. When I went courting, it was always with flowers, candy, and places to go, and things to see. And that is part of courting. That constant pouring out of love. That's the part of courting we like to talk about. But there's another part of courting. And that is preparing the other person's heart to be ready to receive our courting. And that's where it grows difficult. The little girl that I loved in the second grade, I did all I could to pour out my little child's love for this beautiful vision of delight. And I finally wrote her a note, and I said, I love you. Do you love me? And she wrote back, no. Her heart had not been prepared. And so I wrote to her, I hate you. Do you hate me? Yes. Her heart was now being prepared. There has to come a recognition of the pain of the separation before there can be a coming together. If the person who is being courted already has a lover, they'll have no interest in the new one coming courting. They're satisfied. They have what they want, and the courtship ends. It does us well to look sometimes at the unvarnished wrath of God. Now, by His grace, we don't see it often. It's hard to understand. The Scripture refers to it as a strange act of God. Wrath is not God's first choice. Any more than when our daughters were growing up, 
It was not my first choice to put them in their room and make them miss dinner. But their behavior forced it upon me. I didn't wake up in the morning and say, how can I make my precious April angry today? How can I discipline Heidi today just because I want to be mean with her? No, of course I didn't do that. I love them with all my heart. It was their behavior that brought out this strange act from their father. They had me wrapped around their little finger if they just knew it. They could have anything they wanted if they just knew it. But their behavior was so abrient, so disgusting. I had no choice. Now, if that's an earthly father, what about our heavenly father? Judgment is a strange act for God. It's not one he willingly engages in. There is no hatred in God's heart toward you or me. There is hatred toward sin. There's hatred toward death. There's hatred toward bitterness. There's no hatred in God's heart toward you and me. God is not out to get you. To punish you, he's out to get you as his lover. His intention is to court you. His goal is for good and not for evil. He is a God of incredible mercy and compassion and long-suffering And so we need to take an opportunity when it affords us to look carefully at his wrath so we understand what we're dealing with. Because it's either God's mercy or it's God's wrath. There is no in-between place. There's no hiding place. If we avoid his mercy, we will have his wrath. So... To understand the gift of his mercy, we need to understand the strangeness of his wrath. I learned very early that as long as my daughters believed I would not punish them, they gave me all the lip they wanted to give me. As long as they believed there was no consequence for their behavior, they behaved as they chose to behave. Is that true of you too? Will you get away with all you can get away with? Let's look together. Joshua, the sixth chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city, and they devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. This is the great victory of God's people as they come in against 
the Cana land residents, where God's judgment has been pronounced against them, and they're now the agents of that judgment. Jericho was an incredible victory for God's people. They knew they could never have brought those walls down, but the mighty hand of God at the blowing of the trumpet, at the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat covered by the blood, surrounding, walking around that city. The power of God took those walls down. But then Ai, a small town. Don't bother taking the whole army up. We can take them with 3,000 men. Just send up 3,000 men. It was a city of 12,000. Send up 3,000 men. 3,000 men went up. And they fled before the men of Ai, and 36 precious fathers and brothers were killed and lay dead on the field of battle. They took Jericho, and there wasn't one man lost. But Ai, death and destruction strikes them. And Joshua, following the example of Moses, goes and lays before God, stretches out on the ground. He begins to weep. Now, this is not Joshua's greatest moment. This is embarrassing. This is his first real test, and he miserably fails it. Listen to what he says. The seventh chapter of Joshua Verse 7, the wine is loud. Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites The other people of the country will hear about this. They'll surround us and wipe out our nation from the earth. What will you do for your own great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Now, God is not going to put up with Joshua's wine. Sometimes when I go in my prayer closet and I begin to cry out to the Lord, I hear him say to me, stand up and stop whining. Now go do what I ask you to do. I say, oh God, but look, what's going to happen if, what's going to happen? He has no patience with whiners. He wants us to do what he asks us to do. To walk straight ahead. Any of you whiners here today? feeling sorry for yourself. The problem is not God. The problem is sin in the camp. Now, it becomes even more desperate when you're whining and the sin is in your heart. But it could also be in your family's heart or in the church. Watch what happens. 
Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. This is Joshua 7, verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. Let's be real clear. Devoted things. Devoted comes from the word. The original word is harem or harem. In other words, they have gone into my harem and taken what belongs to me, and they've taken it for themselves. That's sin. To touch what belongs to God as though it were our own is sin. He's saying, that is why in verse 12, the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. You know, as soon as I have wind that there may be disagreement between someone or among a a church body, you know, the first thing I do, I don't try to ferret out the details. I don't try to go talk to people and find out what the scoop is. I find I have to do the same thing that was happening here. I have to go to God. And I have to say, God, what do you want to do about this? And he then begins to speak and he says, do this, say this, don't say that. He begins to give instruction. Jan and I have a disagreement. I know my wife well enough that if I press her hard, she'll say, Ray, you're the head of the house. We'll do it your way. I've learned not to do that. I've learned instead to go into my prayer closet and say, Lord, we've got a decision. Either you're going to be the head of this house or I'm going to be the head of this house. We can't both be the head of this house. Lord, either you're going to be the head of the church or I'm going to be the head of the church. We can't both be the head of the church. What I find in Scripture is that I wasn't called to be the head of anything. I was called to be the servant of Jesus Christ. And so with my wife, I have to pray. And I have to ask God, will you deal with my wife's heart? Do you know what he always does? Deals with my heart. And when he gets me straight, it's surprising how quickly I find she's already straight. Isn't that amazing? It's a revelation. So today, my heart is for Jesus to be the head. And Joshua had that heart. And so he obeyed the Lord God of heaven, and he called the people to consecrate themselves. He called for a meeting the next day of all of the people, and by lots they began to choose the family that sin was found in 
in the body of the children of Israel. And Achan was finally chosen. And Joshua said to him, My son, verse 19, give glory to the Lord. Or in other words, don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. Give the God of Israel all the praise. Or you best start confessing right now. Achan was terrified. The people were terrified because they didn't know what God was going to do. Tell me what you've done and do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from the Babylonian, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold, that's about five pounds of silver and about one and a a quarter pound of gold. I coveted them. I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside of my tent with the silver underneath. And Joshua sent messengers, and they found it in his tent. Now, Richard Owen Roberts, that old warrior of God, preached a sermon that I was given a copy of. And as I listened to this sermon, he began to open something for me that I want to share with you. It was obviously a word from the Holy Spirit. Keep your hand right there in that passage of Scripture and turn to 1 John, the second chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 15. 1 John, the second chapter, beginning with verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Well, what? Brother Roberts opened for me in this passage of Scripture is that these three sins are progressive sins. That they cover three stages of development or growth in the life of the Christian. Before young men and women are barely able to have any wisdom in their spirit, they're already having hormones pump in their bodies. And already lust begins to grab a hold of their hearts. And they begin to look at the new curves appearing in that beautiful young woman and say, ah. I mean, that's what happened to me when I was that age. And the young ladies like to dress so that those curves appear even larger than they are. My daughter, daddy, can I have a training bra? I just about lost it. I can say that because now she's a mama with five children. 
Do you understand what I'm talking about? That first sin that grabs a hold of young people is that lust that builds up in the heart. That desire to reach out and grab what is forbidden for yourself. And as that young person begins to grow and mature, if that sin is not dealt with very directly by mom and dad, if that sin is not dealt with directly by their by their teachers, by those who have a mentoring relationship with them, if that sin is not confronted, it will grow. And they'll carry that sin as baggage into the second stage of life. Well, what is the sin of the second stage of life? The lust of his eyes, and when I began to research that carefully in the Greek, this is what I found, that it's not talking about sexual lust now. It's talking about lusting after things, houses, cars, bank accounts, success. There now is as much passion, there is as much passion toward the acquiring of lifestyle and things as there was toward the sexual lust. And I've looked through the years as young men, 26, 27, 28, all the way through the 50s, all their heart's desire is for is to get that next big thing the next house, the next boat, the next car, that next piece of music, that next whatever it is to go. This I have to have to be complete in life. I have to have this. And so wives are basically deserted or husbands are deserted as the husband or wife goes out there to get that thing. I've heard of wives who've even said, my husband has no, uh, my husband has no ambition. He's lazy. So I'm going to go get it. And the husband says, honey, if that's what you want to do, go for it. I'll enjoy the good life with you. Until she grows bitter and says, if you're going to act like that, I'm going to cut you off. How many times I've seen couples go to divorce court over this issue. Now, this desire for things dominates the middle stage of life. But this third one, this third one, the boasting of what he has and does, or the King James Version says, the pride of life. So now the young man has had his conquests. The middle-aged man has accumulated his stuff. And now he's in a stage where he no longer has the ability to make the Sexual conquest. All he can do is ogle. He's past the time when he can go out and get that next big new boat. Well, these three stages have to be conquered by the man or woman of God. Because I'll tell you what happens. I've seen this so many times in men particularly. They never conquered the sexual issue. So they carried in the middle age, but now 
because they've got a wife and they've got kids and they don't want to get caught, they'll get on the computer and do the pornography deal. They'll have their dirty magazines under the bed. They'll have their videos hidden away. If they don't get through that, they'll go into the next stage of life where now they're proud and arrogant and anything you say to them can offend them. Very brittle. They've got the sexual lust still with them. They've got the desire for things still with them. And now they've got this proud, arrogant spirit. And that's why it's so hard for men of age to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's easy for women of age to accept Jesus. Many women in their older age will turn to Jesus, but very few men of age will turn to Jesus Christ because they're still controlled now, not by one sin. They're controlled by all three sins. They're too proud to accept Jesus. They're too filled with their lust for things to accept Jesus, and they're too filled with the lust of youth to accept Jesus. And they're blocked out of the throne room of God. You find many of these men in church leadership across the nation. They're proud of who they are and what they've done, but the underbelly is full of wickedness. Many pastors operate that way. It's a dreadful thing to come to the end of life and have no heart for God because the sin of youth was never dealt with and the sin of middle age was pampered. And now all that's left is the emptiness of pride and the stories of what I did and where I've been and what I'm going to accomplish and how much my wife and my family should respect me. And, and guys, if, if you're in this age, you can tell very quickly if you're caught in this because you'll be saying, my wife should respect me more. My wife doesn't show me the respect that I'm due. Well, no, you're caught in sin. That's the sign. Now, Achan... Achan's caught in the middle age. And he's saying, I've got to have that Babylonian robe because I'm going to have to dress the part. And I've got to have the gold and the silver because there are going to be cattle to buy over there in that Cana land. This is a promised land and I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to be somebody. I'm tired of the life of a slave. I'm going to go for it. And nobody's going to stop me. I'm going to put my banking account in order. I'm going to put it in the safe underneath my tent floor. And when opportunity comes, I'm ready. And God's judgment fell. They took this man and they stoned him to death. They took his wife and his children who had participated in this wicked hiding of the things committed to God, and they stoned them to death. It's not a pretty sight to even think about what stoning does, where the body is crushed 
by the weight of stones striking it. This was God's judgment on one of his own. There was no mercy in the valley of Achor. The valley of Achor was a place of judgment and death, bleeding, sorrow, weeping. There was no reprieve. Most of you in this room, I would guess, would say, oh, I can always repent of that. No, you cannot always repent of that. There is a line you can cross where repentance is not accepted and where death comes. America is approaching that line. I suspect we've already crossed it that the judgments of God are going to be poured out on this nation, regardless of what America does. We have the blood of millions on our hands. We have proclaimed that we are a land of freedom, and we've been a land of slavery. We have proclaimed that we are great moralists. But we can put to death with our courts, a woman who cannot defend herself. We are a wicked nation. And God's judgments are about to fall without mercy upon this land. There is a place that you can cross where you grieve the Holy Spirit And there is no longer any mercy remaining. Let Achan be a warning for our hearts. But we can't stop there. We're going to quickly move forward because there is a promise. In Isaiah 65, there is a promise. Isaiah 65, verse 10. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. So there is a place of hope that he's beginning to speak about through Isaiah. As he says, look, God's judgment comes. It is a bitter judgment. It causes brokenheartedness. It causes weeping. It is a strange act of God, but in that very place where that judgment is done, I am going to turn that place into a place of rest for my people. Now, we know that he did that by sending his son to die on Calvary's tree. And Golgotha, through the blood of Jesus, began to create a place of hope, a place of mercy where no mercy was deserved. And then we turn to the book of Hosea, the second chapter. And God begins to speak very forthrightly. Chapter 2, verse 2, rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Those were the words that were spoken in divorce. 
Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. I will make her like a desert and turn her into parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Here we are hearing the same description of what happened to Achan out there in that wilderness where God's judgment falls and there is no hope. She says, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Now God's judgment comes to Achan, and now in the book of Hosea for the same reason. Because in the mind and the heart, the statement is made, I will do it for myself. I don't need God. I'll reach out my hand and I will take what I desire for myself. And judgment comes. But now listen to this mercy. You see, we've been sharing over the last weeks this constant tension about where do justice and mercy kiss? Where do justice and mercy kiss? We find the justice of God in his wrath. But then we also find his incredible mercy. And we have to learn where that justice and mercy embrace and kiss because that's the only place of safety for us. Now listen in verse 6. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. Oh, wait a minute. You know what's happening. He is preparing her heart for courtship. I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. In other words, we come to a place where God says, okay, I've had it with you. And now I must either destroy you or I must come into your life and start messing it up. I must come into your life and disrupt your life. And so now I'm going to put thorn bushes in front of you. So if you try to go through them, they'll tear you and cause you great suffering. Some of you have tried to go through the thorn bush God put in your way. And you said it was the devil that did it. It wasn't the devil that put that in your way. It was God. Because he's trying to get ready to court you. He's trying to prepare your heart. I'm going to put a thorn bush in your way, he says. And listen. I will block her path. I will wall her in. In other words, I'm going to make her get lost. So she doesn't know how to get where she wants to go. That sounds almost like he's saying, you're going to set a goal. You're going to go for that goal. And every time you go to accomplish what you've said you're going to accomplish, an unknown event will spring up and cause it to be blocked. And it's an act of love, not judgment. 
She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. Now, I don't know of any love greater than that. In the New Testament, we would call it the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Where I set my heart on a course of action that is contrary to the will of God. And he says, go ahead and do all you can to get there, but I'm not going to let you arrive. Thank you, Jesus. Because if you arrive, I'm going to have to destroy you. I can't let you arrive, because if you arrive, I have to destroy you. So my mercy, I'm going to hold you back. I'm going to block your way. Because I don't want to have to destroy you. You know, there are things in my heart, in my mind, that I absolutely sold out to. And I said, I will have this. And I bear testimony today, I don't have them. And the reason I don't have them is not because I didn't try hard. And not because I shouldn't have been able to accomplish it. I was blocked by the power of God. And I was angry. And I then went into despair. I went into depression. I felt sorry for myself. And then hope sprang up in my heart. And I said, there has to be a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. I'm tough. Let's go. I'll find another person who will help me. If I can't do it, there's somebody who can help me. And God would crash all my plans again. And now I'm in a place in my life where... If I really wanted those things, I could go get them. But I would not dare. Because if I went and got them, the Lord God of heaven would destroy me. He will not play with me. The purpose of the Lord God of heaven is not to make me successful. It's not to make me look good. It's to turn me into a lover. It's to court my love. He's playing for eternity. He's not playing for the satisfaction of tomorrow. He's playing for keeps. This God of heaven is so unlike me. He is so unlike me. I can't comprehend his magnificent love for me. Just as I would stand at the street corner and block my daughter from running in the path of a truck. So the Lord God blocks me from running into the path of a truck. And my daughter would sometimes grow so angry with me because I was holding onto her hand. And she'd say, Daddy, I don't need you to hold onto my hand. And if I did not hold onto her hand, she would run into the street. And she would have perished. Sometimes I say, God, I don't want you to hold my hand anymore. And he doesn't let go. That's called grace. That's called mercy. That's called unfailing love. I testify before you today. 
I would be gone. I would be in the world. I would be consumed with uncleanness if the mighty hand of God had not held on to my hand and said, I'm not going to let you go. You belong to me. I love you. Now, I can't explain that. I'm poor of speech. But I testify it's true. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. Oh, I'm always better off when I'm with Jesus. I'm always better off when I'm with Jesus. But I don't know it until God messes my plans up so much and walls me in so well and causes me to get so thoroughly lost that I finally begin to understand who I am and what I am and recognize my desperate need for the hand of God to rescue me. And God's arm is never too short. And my temper is always too long. Verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Another word for that would be now I'm going to seduce her. Now I'm going to win her. Now she's in a place where she's not running after her lovers. Now I'm going to take her to my heart and I'm going to marry her. Oh, we see an example of that when the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt, out of that bondage. Where does God take them? To a a beautiful hotel? No, they're not ready for the beautiful place. They're not ready for the honeymoon. They're ready for some discipline. So he takes them out into the wilderness where there's no television. No redskins. He takes them out into the wilderness where there's nothing to get their attention except scorpions and snakes. And they're hungry. And they're mad because they're hungry. And God's purposely making them hungry. Did you know God will purposely make you hungry? He'll bring about financial circumstance to make you hungry. He'll bring about activities in the outer world to cause you great heartache as you pursue your vision and your dream. Because he wants to make you hungry. Because by making you hungry, he humbles your heart. And then he pours out the manna. And you say, what is it? What is it? It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. It's God's love for you. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert, into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. 
you know, when I talk with our daughters today, we'll be sitting at the table and, and April in front of her family and her children and everybody, she'll say, Daddy, do you remember that time you had to spank me twice? And I'll say, yes, I remember. She'll say, you know what I remember out of that? No, what do you remember? I remember after that second spanking, you came into my room and you took me on your lap. You put your arms around me and you told me you loved me and that you were sorry you had to spank me and that you hoped you'd never have to spank me again. And you asked me if I would please, if I would just obey. And I said, yes. And she said, Daddy, I don't think you ever had to spank me again, did you? If you ever did, I don't remember it. I said, April, I never had to spank you again. I probably should have. Do you understand? God doesn't willingly hurt us. He doesn't willingly punish us. And after he has, he comes and he speaks tenderly to our hearts. And he says, I love you. Now, would you, would you obey me? I don't want to have to do this again. You know, I just have to tell you today, and I don't know how to say it very well. I just have to tell you, the heart of God is so much bigger than our hearts. The heart of God is filled with such love and compassion, but he is not a permissive God. He's not a cheap grace God. He's not an easy believism God. He's a God of great justice and great wrath. He's also a God of immeasurable love and mercy. Verse 16. And that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me master. And then look at verse 15. I'm going to give her back her vineyards. Did your mom or dad ever take anything from you? I've heard of young people having their beds taken. I went in with my daughters, and, and I remember one day, I took everything out of April's closet except two or three outfits. She came home from school. She had two or three outfits hanging. That was it. And she came in a rampage downstairs. Where are my clothes? I said, I gave them away. You what? I gave them away. Why did you give them away? They were mine. I said, did your money buy them? No. Whose money bought them? 
your money, Daddy. Well, then they're mine. You don't deserve them. From now on, keep your room neat. You only have two or three things to keep neat. If you have a problem with that, talk to me or go earn your own money. What a change occurred in her housekeeping. God is saying, I'm going to give her back her vineyards. I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The hope I hold out to your heart today is that God will so discipline you as to prepare you for the courtship that will cause you one day to stand with the saints of God, accepted and loved and covered by the wing of Jesus, so that you can enter in through those pearly gates and you can walk those streets of gold and you can be counted worthy of participating at the tree of life and at that great supper that is going to be spread before you. I pray God will discipline you with great mercy, but with no permissiveness. That he will take away your vineyards. That he'll take away anything he needs to take away. That he'll block up anything he needs to block up. That he'll cause you to lose your way and be confused. He'll do whatever he has to do in your life to prepare your heart to hear his call. And that his love, his incredible, his incredible love will overflow in your heart and you will be a new creature in Christ Jesus.
Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.